Recovery Elevator, episode 66. I knew at that point that I just I couldn't drink anymore. And I knew I had to find that path to a life without alcohol and be happy with that. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for two weeks shy of 21 months. On today's podcast, we've got James. He's been sober since September 28th, 2013. He's a father who had to grow back the trust of his wife before she took him back. Before we get any further, let's hear from our sponsor, Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE for $10 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. The topic for today's podcast is why being a recovering alcoholic should be placed in the asset column instead of the liability column. What I mean by that is when we go into a job interview, The fact that we've been sober for 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 20 plus years should be placed on a resume. In fact, an interview should go something like this. Rick, I see you're experienced with Java code language. You've built 17 websites. You know e-commerce very well. Oh, you're fluent in Spanish. You went to Yale. You've been sober for nine years. You volunteer for the YMCA on the weekends. Rick, on behalf of Inatel, we feel we are a better corporation with you on the team. We would like to offer you a job and basically just name your pay, Rick, because we really want you. In my opinion, due to the stigma, we are far away from having conversations like that. However, conversations like that make a lot of sense. What we do know is that alcoholism is a communal disease. It's a family disease. It has a one degree of separation. What that means again Everybody knows somebody who has been affected by alcohol. Either they're an alcoholic themselves, they have a family member struggling with it, or a dear friend. This is a family disease and everyone has been affected by it, whether you really even know it or not. Here are examples of some professions where being a recovering alcoholic or at least having an inside track and personal experience with the disease are a major asset. And if you are hiring for people in these fields, You would actively seek out people in recovery. Here are some examples. A teacher, a school counselor, any type of counselor, police enforcement, really anybody in law enforcement, a lawyer, a doctor, a personal trainer, a psychologist, a therapist. Now let's drill a little deeper into a couple of those professions. A friend of mine who was interviewed on this very podcast, I believe is episode seven, He is a school counselor who's also been sober for over five years. He mentioned to me that there isn't a day that goes by where he doesn't meet with kids that are directly affected by alcohol. 
some of the kids are drinking alcohol. The problems that they are experiencing are from their own alcohol abuse. But the majority of the problems that he sees are from alcohol abuse in the home. And simply having that empathy to be able to talk with those students and say, look, it's not me to say this, but your parents, they might be alcoholics. Your dad might be an alcoholic. I personally have been sober for five years. If he has any questions, have him come talk to me. Imagine those conversations, the possibilities at parent-teacher conferences. Let's look at a police officer. Nearly two-thirds of domestic violence calls involve alcohol. Simply having empathy with the victims at hand, with the perpetrators, simply having conversations with these people who are in your back seat on the way to the police station would be invaluable and in the long run would save taxpayers millions of dollars. Let's take a look at a doctor. Now this should be a huge asset and you should get paid big bucks for having insider knowledge of how the mind of an alcoholic really works. Number one, your bullshit meter would be a hell of a lot more calibrated. Every time you ask somebody, well, Mr. Jones, how much are you really drinking? You'd be able to see and cut through the bullshit pretty quickly. I cannot remember where I saw this and read it, but in the early 1900s, no joke, on one of those medical checkout forms, there was a box that said hopeless alcoholic or hopeless drunk. A doctor on the chart would simply check, this guy is a hopeless drunk, there's nothing we can do for him. Let's look at psychologists and psychiatrists, counselors, therapists. I can only speak from personal experience, but I've met with no shortage of therapists, psychologists, and counselors, and the ones that I've connected with are in recovery. I'm not discounting the skill sets of the others, but it's literally like a 10 to 1 ratio. I'll have 10 sessions with somebody who's not in recovery, and yeah, we'll make progress. But when I meet with a psychiatrist or a therapist in recovery, just in that one session, we'll make just as much progress that I made in the 10 other sessions with the other counselor. I did have a counselor one time that for just some reason, and bless her heart, she didn't understand that I was addicted to alcohol. She kept prying. And I tried. I, I worked with her. She kept asking for childhood events. Was I ever sexually abused, molested, beaten? She kept digging and asking these questions. And I tried as well. I tried to think. We had waterfall music playing, special mists that were scented of lavender in the room. But no, my parents were incredible. I had a great childhood. I wasn't sexually abused, molested, or any of that other stuff that does happen to a lot of people. Thank goodness it didn't happen to me. I have a genetic predisposition that when I drink enough alcohol, I became an alcoholic. It's really that simple. Unfortunately, it took us nine sessions that weren't free to arrive to that conclusion. If you're a personal trainer, you could also see right through the bullshit. Miss Richardson, I see you've been following the workout plan and the diet, but you come in smelling like booze. We're not making any gains. Well, you've gained weight. And uh, what is really going on here? A personal trainer will be able to see right through that and have a serious conversation. Okay, so the example of the interview, which should be happening every day for people who are in long-term recovery, which doesn't ever happen due to the stigma, we're a little bit far away from that. So let's get to the current situation. If you are in recovery or you're in early recovery and you're looking for work, sure, it can be a liability. There is a lot of damage and wreckage that comes from our drinking. Some people have felonies. Some people have been fired from many jobs. 
Some people have quit educational opportunities to get those positions. So here's some tips and tricks to set yourself up for the best chances for success. Number one, get a job in your field. You've all heard the advice, don't do any large changes in your life within the first year. Don't get a job as a lifeguard if you don't know how to swim. I highly recommend you start with something you already know really well. Number two, don't shoot for the stars. Start small, start simple. You've got your ass kicked by alcohol. You've been humbled plenty of times. Stay humble, have humility, and start small. Another thing I highly recommend is do some research on the company or at least some of the people that are working there. Is it an open environment? Will you be the lone wolf in recovery at that work environment? Unfortunately, due to the anonymous part of the 12-step program, Alcoholics Anonymous, sometimes this is easier said than done. You might not have a clue who's in recovery, but if the business is 10 people or more, chances are there's somebody in recovery. Seek out employers that are in recovery. Working in an environment where you can have honest conversations with your boss, with your other coworkers about recovery, it's a pretty cool thing. I'm an entrepreneur and my payroll is getting large. And on my payroll, I've got about 30% of the employees are in recovery. It's awesome. Some more advice about getting back into the workforce is get a job where you're helping people. Seriously, don't underestimate the power of service work. Ideally, if you can get a job in a recovery center, that would be great because your experience living firsthand, that's an asset. That's not a liability. In those type of work environments, they know that. But even if you get a job where you're helping the homeless in a homeless shelter, you're still going to be helping somebody. If you do find yourself lacking in the skills department, I recommend getting a trade, a highly niched skill. Seriously, going back to school can create loads of debt, but knowing a specific trade or skill like welding, like underwater welding, that's a skill and a trade that not a lot of people have where it doesn't really matter that you're in recovery or you really cannot stop drinking. Be like, well, Bill, yeah, he's a little bit of a drunk, but he's the only one that can weld my propeller to the bottom of my boat while the damn thing's in the water. Here's some more reasons why you want people in recovery on your workforce, on your team. Number one is we have seen and been through so much. I'm not joking you. The last three weeks of my professional career, I have never faced this amount of professional adversity. I kid you not. This is hard for me to say because I don't want to admit it. I found my very first gray hair yesterday. I've been under so much stress in the last three weeks that it can't be a coincidence. It was there just staring me at the face. I was like, no, no, that can't. Yep, that's definitely a gray hair. But at the end of those days, and guess what? Monday, tomorrow will probably be the same. It's not like the Jimmy Cliff song where I can see clearly now the rain is gone. No, it is still pouring rain and tomorrow it's going to be a long day. But the end of those long days, I'm like, meh, could be worse. I've gone through hell and back. This really doesn't compare. All I got to do is stay sober. That's the most important part. Who gives a shit? Seriously. It might seem like Janice from accounting who hasn't been to work in two weeks is really messing things up. Parking lot is being remodeled. The third floor is on fire. The internet hasn't been connected for four days. You're like, well, uh, let's just work together as a team and figure this out because we can't do this alone. Let's uh, get together and we'll get through this. 
while the rest of your coworkers, your normal drinkers, will be running through the door, packing bags and boxes, screaming at the top of their lungs. Seriously, we've been through a lot of shit, and we've made it, and we've survived. We are the lucky ones. Another huge opportunity that you have if you are vocal about your recovery in your organization, and it doesn't matter if your organization is large or small, you could educate the people in these organizations. Companies lose millions to billions of dollars a year for lack of productivity, for getting people trained up and then they quit or they get fired, they get a DUI, they don't show up to work due to alcohol problems. There are many companies that do exactly this. They bring people in and talk to them about alcohol and recovery because they understand it's worth the investment. Training somebody up, spending all that time, energy, and resources on getting somebody trained and then having them not show up due to their alcoholism, that costs the company a lot of the bottom line. Sure, it seems like it's ethically the right thing to do to train their employees about alcohol and addiction, but no, the reason behind this is because the companies will be more profitable if they put on these classes. So somebody's got to put on the classes and might as well be you. Another reason why being in recovery is an asset is because we are fighters. We are highly motivated workers. We are fighting to get our lives back on track and we will do whatever it takes. Larry Keast, the founder and CEO of Venture Tech Drilling Technology, a Houston-based company founded in the 1980s who has 50 employees right now, has several employees in recovery. He said that as soon as he started to hire people in recovery, that he witnessed employee morale going through the roof and people's spirits were on the rise as well. Another reason is that our productivity is more consistent. You know what you're going to get out of us day after day. Yeah, Janice from accounting, she's a normal drinker. But when the wheels come off at a company party, she's useless for a week after that. One suggestion I might have is wait till you get to a year or two years, three, four, five, before you start making it public knowledge that it is an asset. Unfortunately, that is a gamble that you're going to have to take. A future employer may not react favorably to you opening up about you being in recovery. However, like I mentioned before, being an alcoholic, it's a blessing. It's a gift because being an alcoholic, it's the best filter I could have ever asked for. Right there in the interview process, you know this is not a good fit for you. You didn't have to work for the company for one month, two months, three years before finding out it's not going to work. So if you are in recovery and you're a therapist, you're a doctor, I'm going to go back to the therapist thing. You're sitting on a gold mine. If you're not marketing that, you need to seriously think about doing that now. Okay, now let's hear from interviewee James. James, how are you? I'm doing great, Paul. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining me. James, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I checked my app earlier, and today is 965 days, so over two and a half years. No way. Nice job. And James, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old you are, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? I grew up in northeastern Minnesota, and sometimes that accent still comes out. Minnesota, but uh, I heard it. Minnesota. I moved to Bozeman in the late 80s. After I flunked out of, uh, I had a full ride scholarship to the University of Minnesota, and I had way too many party experiences there. <laughs> sure. And uh, I came out to Montana State, and I shifted my focus from partying to skiing. And so I went to school, and I ski bummed, and I ended up leaving Montana 
after 9-11 because I owned a hiking tour business that kind of tanked after 9-11 that my clients were not really wanting to travel sure, for a while. Sure, income business. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Not recession-proof. <laughs> not, not really. And I ended up in a little town high in the mountains in Colorado, Lightville, and lived there for quite a while and eventually found myself back in Bozeman last fall. So that's where I am now. I'm nice. 48, I am married, and I have a three-year-old who keeps me super busy and feeling not so young at times. I'm currently working as a cabinet maker and woodworker, and I also do a little online media consulting as on the side, so keeps me busy. Yeah, and now in your sober days, what do you like to do for fun? For fun? Oh, man. I love to still, I get out and ski and backcountry ski all winter. I love to take my son skiing now. It's so much fun. Hiking, mountain biking is huge. I love to mountain bike. Climbing, mountaineering, getting up high in the mountains is just something wonderful. It's just very meditative for me. James, let's jump right into the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Talk to me about your elevator. Did something happen on September 27th, 2013? I know your sobriety date is September 28th. Um, <laughs> did you just get sick and tired of being sick and tired? What? Uh, you know, was there too many powder days and you're like, you know what? I'm hungover. I'm not going to get on the mountain. Talk to me about that. What, what made you decide to quit drinking? Oh, man. Yeah, my life had just been going down and down for a while at that point. And basically, it had become a bad country western song. Uh, you know, <laughs> kind of like I had uh, I had lost my job. I got a DUI, so I was going to lose my car and everything. Uh, my wife had left. She took our four-month-old son and the dog. I was getting kicked out of my house. And my friends were abandoning me left and right. And it was just, it was terrible. And James, that's that's an Alan Jackson song. (laughs) That's incredible. I know I could write one, couldn't I? So I I had somehow wooed my wife into letting me babysit while she went to work. And I was babysitting. She was at work. And I thought it was a good idea to bring a half pint of vodka with me. And, you know, I, next thing I know, uh, it was on top of whatever I drank the night before. And I, I woke up in the, in the hospital. I don't remember how I got there. And I just knew I was going to, I needed to get sober. I was going to die. It was just, it was terrible. James, talk to me about the timeline or the progression. You were mentioned down, down, down. How fast were things going down, 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 or what I'm referring to the why alcohol is so dangerous is that it kills by the millimeter. It's such a slow downward progression. Is that what, you know, if it happened overnight, it, it would, it would be easy. And, and talk right. about that progression for you. Oh man, that was a, a years long progression to get to that point. Years, yeah. years and years. I, you know, I, I had my first drink before I was two, I, I toddled over to a, a martini that was on a, coffee table and took a big swig 
and was choking. And I and and when I came up for air, <laughs> I looked at my mom and I said, "More taste." Oh, I actually wow. wanted more, and she th- she knew I was in trouble at that time. The next question but, is describe your drinking habits, but I guess we can just skip that one overall. Yeah, and then through high school, it just got worse, and I was smart enough. I still managed straight A's while being a party animal. I don't know. And like I got to college at the University of Minnesota, Big Ten school, and it was a party every night, every day, and I, I flunked out. I was done and I came out to Montana and my focus totally shifted. I was then into skiing and being outdoors. I was with a different group of people and you know my new addiction was kind of adrenaline, I guess. And we smoked a lot of weed along the way, but I didn't drink as much cuz I couldn't afford it and I didn't have enough energy. I was too tired at the end of the day to drink more than two beers and fall asleep. Wow, and it, but it sounds like you almost replaced you know that alcohol with the adrenaline and uh, yeah. marijuana. <laughs> yeah, I think I you know I still have kind of an addictive personality in that way. So it wasn't until years years later that I just really started kicking up the drinking, and I would binge drink along the way, much like I had done in high school. And what did those binge drinking sessions look like for you? Oh man, just fin- a drink until. You know, there's no nothing left to drink right? until it's just time to go home. Or I, I don't remember blacking out a ton, but just like just always drinking until the party. You know, being the last one there for whatever reason is just like there's still got to be enough enough time to get in another drink or two. And sure, my excuse was, well, I don't want to be a bad guest. I got to stay here till the end and, and help the host clean up. Yeah, that's just, that's yeah. what I need to do clean up these drinks here so yeah. it's like paul i'm throwing the drinks away and you're drinking them what uh you talk about something yes yeah. we do I, oh it used to bother me when people would leave a half half drunk drink sitting there it's like, like what make me furious come on just so, furious. so yeah, yeah i think tell I me think about the uh, the drinking habits kind of the last year or two years leading up last, to before you drank uh before the you decided last, to quit drinking yeah the last couple of years i had Moved from the mountains in Colorado to uh, was supposed to be a temporary stint to help family in West Michigan. And the first month we were there, there were two days with sun. It was it was a December, and it was just instantly depressing. And I was running my own business out of the basement of our house, and it was just I was anxious. Anxiety was was a constant thing and i was what was that like oh man and i would just drink to take care of it and the drinking started earlier and earlier in the day because i could i could drink right there at home and pretty soon i was you know almost all day every day and when we moved back to colorado my wife and i had recently gotten married five days before the wedding we found out we were pregnant Two weeks later, we packed up and moved across the country. I sold my business and started a new job that I really didn't like. And there's the anxiety and frustration. I was just really angry at everything and I just drank at it, you know. And then I started isolating and uh, just, it just got worse and worse. 
And so. what you described was, you know, in my notes, I have, uh, you know, from Minnesota, then went to Montana, then to Colorado, and then back to Michigan, and then to Colorado, and then back to Bozeman. And it's just the slow progression and that coupled with the ism, alcoholism, which I refer to, you know, the ism, the incredible short memory is the progression is so slow. And our memory of that last drink, it's like, well, it wasn't that bad. You know, it's going to be different this time. Have you ever tried to, uh, you know, do some limited drinking, moderate, put plans into place, things like that? Oh yeah. I was, I called it my relapse roller coaster because I knew I was having problems like I needed to quit drinking and I would quit for a week two weeks 30 days six weeks I went to some AA meetings I met with therapists I talked to family I had all kinds of stuff and it just you know my self-plan my plan just did not work uh, because I, I would get healthy enough where I could start thinking again you know that I can I can handle this. I'll just have one drink. I'll have two drinks, and that would just lead to more and more. And I was just right back where I was. And towards the end, I was just continuing to drink because I didn't want to go through withdrawals. I had been through them several times, and it was terrible. I was like, well, I don't want to do that again. So yeah, and, and you're just like, oh yeah, or I can hang out with you. Anxiety, I could get sober up and uh, feel you anxiety, or you know, just keep drinking and peace out. Uh, I hear that. And I'm curious, James, how, how'd you do it? How did you get sober on September 28th, 2013? That day, you know, I, I woke, I ended up, I was in the hospital. The only way I could go anywhere from there was have the police take me to a addiction recovery center. My wife would not come, come get me at all. She had, didn't want anything to do with me anymore. Sure. And, I went to the center to, to to dry out, and I talked to a lot of people there, some of the counselors, and I stayed extra days. It was pretty expensive to stay there, but every day I would go to a couple AA meetings, and when I finally felt strong enough to leave, I, I left, and I, <laughs> I didn't even have shoes. It was terrible because the EMTs had taken my shoes off when they hauled me away. I took a bus <laughs> back to my. James. <laughs> I took a bus back to my car, with no shoes on. No shoes on. And yeah. how how many days have you been sober at that point? Oh, like three days. Oh wow, the bus driver's like, sir, you need Wear a drink. Wear the same like, clothes. No, I need shoes. Uh, yeah, it's terrible. And I got in my car, and that's all I had. I didn't have anywhere to go. I was going to be living in my car, and I. I had to find a place to go, and I couldn't afford a rehab center or anything. And after a few days, I found a uh, sober living home, a sober house in northern Colorado that would take me in. And I ended up there for several months, six months. Wow. And, and James, what you were given was the gift of desperation and yeah. many people, they don't even unwrap the package. They just give it right back because that window, the conduit with the gift of desperation that will shut. And it sounds like you took advantage of that. Yeah, I did. I, you know, I had a huge desire at that point to make things better in my life. I knew it could be better and I really wanted my family back. You know, I wanted that love. I wanted to love them and them to love me and my new son and everything. And I, I knew at that point that I just, 
I couldn't drink anymore. And I knew I had to find that, that path to a life without alcohol and be happy with that. And it might sound like you didn't have a choice. Well, it's like, well, James, you don't have a choice. You did. You chose to get sober. And a lot of people, we are the lucky ones, James, a lot of people in those circumstances facing that adversity with no shoes, they go back to drinking because they know where that temporary quick relief is going to come from. So I got to, I got to applaud you on that one. Nice job. And, and tell me about the sober house and what happened there. You know, it was, it was pretty intense. We had group therapy sessions that we had to attend and we had to live. It was all, you know, male house and there were some women that lived in a different house and we would get together. And then we had to attend AA meetings twice a day as part of that, get a sponsor. We had to get on our 12-step program. And that was one of the best things I could do. I had been to some AA meetings in the past and I found a men's group that met early Saturday mornings and it was just like five guys and it was perfect. And I met my sponsor there and and it just got me off on the right foot. And, I, you know, it's kind of a blessing because I had the chance then to start my life over. You know, I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything. So I, I found a job and I, I made some friends and I just Back started. before the job, when did you get shoes <laughs> is my first question. When did I get shoes? Yeah. The shoes were in my car when I got to my oh, car. Okay. So like, that, EMTs had taken them off. And so I got shoes and I got I had, I still had my car, and I had a, a tough road to hoe, but I, I knew I just had to, to keep after it, and I had a lot of support with my extended family, and living with a bunch of addicts in recovery is really interesting. You can have great conversations. It's basically like being in an AA meeting 24 hours a day. Wow. You can okay. talk about anything, anytime, and there's anyone there to listen to you. Yeah. Or you're there to listen to others. So, God. And, and talk to me about the, uh, you mentioned you had a lot of support through extended family. The very first question, you said you've got a wife, you've, you've got a kid. When did they come back around? And it's, you know, they've heard the same things. It's like, I'm, gonna, I'm done drinking, I'm quitting. You know, how long did it take for them to realize, like, wow, maybe, maybe this is the real deal? I, I called, I talked to my wife on the phone, and I also... I started as part of my portfolio, as you call it, I, I started a journal at that time and my journal, and I, I still write in that journal. It's really kind of become quite a, a fun thing. What but do it you was, write about? I've heard of gratitude journals. I, I've, I've, you know, yeah, this was, uh, this was letters to my son. Ooh. So each entry is a, a new letter to my son, and I don't send it. I just write it in the journal because I wasn't with them, and I, I really wanted to be. And I wanted him to understand why I wasn't there. Do you think one day you'll give him those letters? Yeah, you know, possibly. Maybe he'll want to read them. Maybe not. I, it's it just really helped me verbalize to him in my mind, you know, what was going on and where I wanted to be, and and what I wanted to focus on on healing. And then I did write him some letters too that I sent, you know, that I had my wife read to him. And eventually they started visiting me at the sober house. And after a certain amount of time, I got visitation access to, le to leave the place and go see them. And we um, you know, had holidays together. They came for Christmas dinner and you know, some things like that. It was, it was a long process, but it was getting better all the time. 
It's a lot of work. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot of work. And James, I'm getting smarter in recovery. Is the other day I, I had a day you know, I was supposed to meet my sponsor at noon. It was like 8 a.m. I looked at my calendar, the phone and messages, emails. I was like, that is not happening. Like, I need to cancel this meeting, but I'm getting smarter. The times when I absolutely can't cancel my meeting with my sponsor or when I cannot find the time to write in my gratitude journal, which I have, I just say, I'm thankful for this. The times when I absolutely cannot, you know, I think there's no way I can fit that in my schedule. I'm like, all right. And I, I met with my sponsor and that, that entire day I had the one hour of reprieve. And when I sit down and just start writing, like I'm thankful for the grass being green instead of frozen, like the tundra that Montana can be. <laughs> right. That's when I get that reprieve. Have you experienced the same thing? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And my relationship with my family and my wife has grown so much over this whole process. We are we are so much stronger for it all. I think it's been, it's been a lot of ups and downs, but it's trending up and it's it's been a beautiful thing. Yeah, and so you, it's possible to get that stuff back. Is that what I'm hearing you say? It is. If I if that's what you truly desire, then you can you can find a way. I, and I'm lucky that my wife was willing to to listen to me and work with me, but she was she was good too because she was exhibiting some tough love. She kicked me out and I called her from the hospital that time and she wouldn't come get me. She didn't want anything to do with me. So there was a a period there where, you know, she wasn't going to come back around and let me get away with anything. Yeah. Did she know you didn't have shoes? (laughs) Come on. Yeah, I did. That's why I called her. I'm like, I don't have shoes. You got to bring me my shoes or come pick me up or something. She's like, no, no, I'm hanging up. And she hung up. Yeah. That was it. That's amazing. So over two years of sobriety and talk to me about your recovery portfolio. Walk me through a day in the life of James. My days usually start pretty early. I work long days. So I I like to get up early and have some time in the morning when it's quiet. Everyone else is sleeping. And I do a little meditation, some gratitude kind of meditation stuff. And it's more just like breathing and sitting. And I do some light yoga stretching. That really helps me with my work and just with life. And lately, I've been running a little bit in the morning, which is kind of fun. I love it. Uh, It gets me out and about. And then even just taking the dog for a walk. Those things can be kind of meditative, just the walking or going hiking or something. And I don't attend as many AA meetings as I used to. I just can't quite find the time to get away to do that. But of course, the Cafe RE helps with that a lot. So, And then I focus on, on spending a lot of time with my family. The evenings are family time only. Awesome. Uh, you know, that's why I like to get up early and take care of bills or whatever it is, because I, I just want to spend time with my son and uh, do fun things, fly a kite, you know do whatever it is. Ride. He loves riding bikes, so we go for bike rides and stuff. So, And then I've also been focusing on putting together some nutritional and health nutrition information for addicts in recovery. And that helps keep me accountable to myself and then to what I'm posting. It's a blog right now, but maybe someday it'll be a podcast. Yeah. What's the name of that blog? Uh, Hungry for Recovery. HungryForRecovery.com, is that what it is? Yep, that's it. That is awesome. And that will be in the show notes as well, so you can check that out. 
And I want to talk to you about the nutrition component is when you, before we started the interview, you were chatting and you said in the sober housing, you would teach the addicts about proper nutrition because it's really, for me, it's this simple. It's garbage in, garbage out. And when I focused on my nutrition, getting sober and staying sober, it was so much easier when my mental faculties were firing as, as best as they could and they weren't gummed up with like cheeseburgers and stuff. Yeah. Comment on that for me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, my background years ago, I had a hiking tour company that was health and nutrition focused. And when I was early in my recovery, I understood that I also needed to heal my brain physically so that I could deal with the mental challenges of becoming sober so that it'd be you know, strong enough to tackle that. And I actually met with a, a nutritionist, a professional who works at a rehab center and they do that sort of thing there. And I learned a lot and was able to take that and teach it, being a former teacher, to the, the folks at the sober house. So once a week I would have a class and I would bring healthy nutritional snacks that had you know, magnesium or something in them to help people's brains heal and talk to them about it. And then we could all be accountable to each other because we were all living in the same space and watching what each other was eating and cooking. And I saw so many, especially younger kids coming in, they were coming straight from a rehab place to the sober house and they were fueling themselves with Hot Pockets and Red Bull and Mountain Dew. And they were wondering why they felt, you know, crappy. And I was like, well, <laughs> we'll turn the can sideways. And that'll yeah, give you right. a good indication <laughs> look at, look to start. At what you're putting in your body and you're dealing with recovering from an addiction, going through a pause, post-acute withdrawal and, and all kinds of stuff. So I just have, have carried that on. And, and it's a it's a big part of my my daily routine, my daily life. And it's it's wonderful to watch my son who really loves healthy food because that's what we eat. And that's what we we feed him. He gets a cookie now. He eats about half of it, and he's like, okay, I'm done. So That is so cool. And James, before we reach the rapid fire round, I just got a question for you. When cravings come, what do you do? I guess I think about I, – I remember back to when that, was, when that was fun, and then I remember when it went from fun to just problems, and I don't, I don't want it anymore. You know, I – the most cravings I get now are I go backcountry skiing with some buddies of mine and they always have beer in the car waiting at the end of the day. Yeah. And man, that's just, it was such a ritual uh -huh. to have that beer at the end of the day after a big ski or a big mountain bike ride. And I, instead I have, you know, my, my fizzy water LaCroix or whatever it is <laughs> in the cooler. And I, you know, I cheers them right along with it and, and they've gotten used to it. They don't care. You know, it's the, they don't care. They're they the don't care. Real friends. True friends, really. Care. Yeah, there's no no stigma around it. I'm open and honest about what's going on, and they're cool with it. So, I yeah, I don't find too many cravings anymore. It's it's kind of nice. Biggest thing I've been working on is sugar. <laughs> sugar cravings. I've been without sugar for uh, 36 days or something now, and that's that's been a tough one. That's just as tough as. Alcohol God, James, I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> I actually question, like, do you have an apple? Because there's a lot of natural sugars in, in apples. Yeah, yeah. It's just the refined sugar okay. I don't. So if gotcha. I do want a sweet treat, I'll eat yeah, fruit or 
even raisins or something. But I was eating way too much ice cream and sure. crap like that. So yeah, I just had to cut it out. No sugar. That's awesome. And I love how you mentioned when you do get a craving, you know, the ism, the incredible short memory, you don't forget of, of your last drink. And I always am adamant, like, don't forget my last drink and how crappy it was at the end there. Um, and James, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it, James. Number All one, right. what's your worst memory from drinking? That's got to be waking up in the hospital, looking down, no shoes, then not knowing how I got there. That was awful. Well, we know who took the shoes off. Um, Do you still know, no clue of how you got there? Oh, well, my wife tried to call me and couldn't get a hold of me. And she called that, you know, someone to come check and they called the ambulance and they hauled me away in a gurney and everything. I don't even remember any of it. Wow. Next question, James. We've all heard of the aha moment. Have you ever had an oh shit moment indicating that you really can't control your drinking? I would say it would have to be when I was when I was going to AA meetings and then stopping at the liquor store on the way home. Like, nah, this is not good. <laughs> like, I can't control it. Yep. That would classify. And next question, James, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Um, my plan is to just keep up with my, my portfolio. And I really want to help others in this in this space, uh, much like you have, Paul, that you know, I was actually signed up for grad school to become a wilderness therapist. I thought I could take my wilderness background and combine it with therapy, but that didn't happen. The path was, was something else. So I'm going to just keep up with... Uh, this hungry for recovery and, and some other stuff. I love it. And uh, next up, what's your favorite resource in recovery? This can be a 12 step program, a book, an app. What you got? Let's see. I got, I got a lot, but I think right now I'm currently reading Jack Canfield's 30 day sobriety solution. Okay. And I, I, I really like it because it's got more of a, um, like a life planning you know, that's kind of his background is like a life coach sort of deal. Uh-huh. It's got kind of a life planning just to it. And I think you can use it not just for for dealing with alcoholism, but for anything like me dealing with sugar or, or any other bad habits you want to break. You create good ones and those stick. So it's been pretty cool. Nice. And James, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you have ever received? I think the best thing I ever heard was a good friend of mine who was uh, my therapist and is a great friend of mine now, Carol, said that, you know, I am enough and and that who I am is is enough and that I don't have to try to be anything else and I don't have to be ashamed of who I am or what I've done or decisions I made or what my life had become and that I could just move forward from that point to be the best that I could be. James, usually I ask what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober, but I'm going to throw you a curveball. Right. What advice would you give to your younger self? My younger self. I would give my younger self the advice that to to really spend some time and and make a life plan and and really create the things, write out what you truly desire, and maybe work backwards from your eulogy. It sounds kind of weird, but write your eulogy. Like, what do you want people to say about you? 
wow. at the end and then work towards that and do the things that will take you to that beautiful desired life because you can you can achieve anything you really truly desire you know there's going to be challenges and you're going to get hurt along the way but if that's what you really really want you'll get there I love it, James. Before we depart, give listeners your own personalized You Might Be an Alcoholic If line. All right. You might be an alcoholic if you create a drink called the Drive-By Martini, which is a swig out of the vodka bottle you got stashed in the freezer, followed by an olive from the fridge. Oh, yeah. And that way you don't even need a glass and no. you never taste the vodka. Absolutely. It goes right on down. Yeah. Yeah. No glass to clean. That's incredible. No, this, nice. <laughs> it's always right there. <laughs> well, James, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for helping me stay sober. Have a great night. All right. Thanks, Paul. You too. Like I mentioned in previous podcasts, I have a dream. Actually, that's got a great ring to it. I'm going to try to trademark that. I've got a dream of opening up a recovery cafe. It's a dream that I'm scared to see that it actually comes and takes place. Because after these last three weeks, the thought of owning another business right now is absolutely terrifying to me. But myself and a couple other people who came out for the Run for Recovery, which took place this past Saturday in Bozeman, Montana, we put up the signs that say Recovery Cafe in the window of my office that has a lot of visibility on a busy street in Bozeman, Montana. To tell you the truth, the zoning laws won't even allow us to put a cafe in there. The point of that is to get the conversation started. The whole point behind Recovery Elevator is to tackle the stigma. And you never know. If the conversation gets started and there's enough demand, we might just have a recovery cafe in Bozeman, Montana, where you can go with your sponsor, work the 12 steps. You can be in recovery and you can work there. You can sit in an interview and say, yeah, I've been sober for three years. And we'll be like, boom, welcome to the team. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We've got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Oh, 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 oh,